Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, everybody. This is the Variety and iHeart podcast, The Big Ticket. I'm Mark Malkin. We're starting today's show with Lily Collins. The Golden Globe nominee stars in the new Netflix series, Emily in Paris, created by Darren Starr, the same man who brought us Sex in the City and Younger. Then later in the show, a very candid interview with Zachary Quinto, one of the stars of the new adaptation of the classic gay drama, Boys in the Band. Quinto explains why he thinks the play still resonates today and why he was inspired to come out as gay several years ago. I'll have Collins coming up after this short break. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. I'm talking to Lily Collins. The 31-year-old actor stars in the new Netflix series Emily in Paris as a young marketing exec from Chicago who's unexpectedly transferred to Paris. While filming the show on location in the City of Lights, Collins was also crisscrossing continents to prep in Los Angeles for Mank, David Fincher's upcoming drama about the making of Citizen Kane. I spoke to Collins from her home in Los Angeles. Ah, there you are. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, wow. You look fabulous. Oh, thanks. Well, I'm wearing sweatpants on the bottom, so... I'm literally wearing shorts. <laughs> no. I mean, this is the world that we're living in now. It really is so bizarre. It's kind of great, but at the same time, it's just like, it's bizarre. Yeah, no, this morning I was like, I'm going to put on jeans today. It's a little chilly in the apartment. I'm like, why? Why? <laughs> I know. So like literally throwing on the lipstick, it's it's bizarre. Like I had a, I had this like fitting where I'm doing something after this and I, I had, I was sent clothes, you know, and then I like put on a pair of heels and I'm like, I haven't worn a pair of heels in maybe like five months. <laughs> it's, uh, oh, how are you, how are you coping in quarantine? How are you surviving? It's, you know, it's been like, um, it's, it has its, its ups and downs. It's been an emotional roller coaster. you know, it's like pivoting and finding ways to stay creative and stay sane and, and be grateful and be thankful and get out of the city in ways to try to breathe. But, um, it's been the best period for deep self-reflection, you know, and I'm someone who doesn't shy away from that. So it's been kind of a great excuse to use that time to, I guess, better yourself in a sense, you know, and really kind of like look inward. And it's been, it's been pretty eye-opening in that regard. Um, priorities shift. So let's talk about something that was done before the pandemic struck. Yes. Aris. Oh my God, I feel like Nicole Kidman in Moulin Rouge. 
I'm Emily, Emily Cooper. Seems crazy that it would come out now at a time when we're not able to go somewhere like Paris, right? It's like, as an American in Paris, that's, that's an absurd idea. And it's something that seems like a dream come true. And it was for Emily. And now I look back and go, how did we shoot that scene? You can't be kissing. You can't be touching. There's like a crowd of people over there. Where's your six foot radius? You know, and it's like this wish fulfillment of like, that's what I want to be doing right now. And, and it's crazy that we get to finally have it shared with the world at a time when I feel like the lightness that the show brings and the wish fulfillment and the travel, it's exactly what we need to see right now, I think. And like you said, it's light. There's obviously serious stuff in it, but yeah, here it's aspirational. I mean, who doesn't want to get a job offer in Paris and just right? go? I know, I know, exactly. And that's something that I loved about when I read the pilot and the pilot consisted of the first two episodes together um, and kind of talking to Darren, knowing like when I first had my meeting with Darren, it was truly, I was just an actress going in to have a meeting with Darren. It wasn't, there was no like, this is yours by any means. It was like me going in to fight for the opportunity to even, you know, go on tape or audition. And I read it and I thought, wow, the way in which this is going to go throughout the season, and, and you can see it in the first episode, is that Emily doesn't have to change who she is in order to be ultimately embraced and understood. She she's obvious she's loud in her fashion and in her like her facial expressions and every she's very obvious in a lot of ways and she's very much set in who she is but she's also so willing to embrace change and new ideas and new people and and learn about herself and also in turn teach other people and so we didn't we didn't have this like transformation scene where she goes into a dressing room like Emily from America and comes out this like, oh, all of a sudden she's Parisian Emily and people are like, oh, now we understand you, you know? And I, I loved that because it wasn't this like stereotypical experience of a, of a girl who has to change who she is to be embraced. And she can still be that kooky, obvious like girl. And that's what makes her so special and good at her job. But she's also not afraid to kind of go, oh, I hadn't thought of things that way. And, and maybe I am going to start to like pick that up or pick that up there. And and it's, it's great because that's kind of like the modern woman. You know, you don't have to change who you are, but you're also willing to kind of embrace where you are and, and kind of create a new version of yourself when you grow and learn and go to a different country. Well, let's talk about that. So Emily is, you know, this young woman, lives in Chicago. She gets this job offer to do marketing social media for a big fashion PR firm in Paris because mm -hmm. she's fucked from Chicago, plucked down in Paris, doesn't know anyone, doesn't know the language. Yeah. Um, how do you relate to that? When, when, when have you found yourself like, uh, where am I? What's like a fish out of water? Yeah. Um, well, as a kid, you know, I was born in England and I moved here right before I turned six. And although a child experience is very different than an adult already, um, I did feel very much like a fish out of water, like when I first walked into school that first day, having a uniform, not speaking the same, like having an act, speaking English, but sounding British. And at that age, you know, like young kids are very blunt with like, you don't sound like me, you don't look like me, you know, and you're just like, I just want to fit in. And I just want to like, 
be embraced and what, you know, what do I do? And so I felt very much a version of that kind of fish out of water feel. Um, and I think also there's an element of me that, or at least within what I do, like my job is every time you enter a new set, it's like, it's a new world. I'm, I don't always know people on the set. I don't know the crew. Your first day at work, especially if you're entering a, a crew or a set that's already started before you got there and you're not there on the first day and everyone has relationships already and everyone gets what's going on and you're like, oh my God, what am I doing? Where, you know, you just have to kind of keep that like head on your shoulders and go, everything's going to be fine. Um, I'm here for a reason, but like I got to adapt and you have to pivot, right? So I feel like there's that element to it. And, and the thing that I love though, is that as so I like to see, like we were talking before about kind of the silver lining or the brighter side of things and kind of, I, I like to see the positive in a situation, not to an annoying degree because that on paper can be like, okay, like, and I think that that's, we've all been in that situation in the last six months of, okay, what do I do? Like where, how do I stay creative? How do I feel productive? How do I feel like myself? What do I do when I'm placed in front of this like metaphorical mirror and I have to like actually deal with the voices in my head and I have to think about the things that like I like about myself, the things that I want to work on and like what does that look like and who am I and all these conversations that I think you go through as a kid, you go through as a teenager, you go through the, in your 20s, you go through as an adult, and you keep going through. So I feel like it's this kind of sense of identity and finding yourself that we can all kind of relate to, no matter if you're a man, a woman, whatever generation you are, no matter where you live in the world, like that's something that I feel like this show kind of dives into. So it's Darren Starr. If yes. mm -hmm. people don't know who Darren Starr is. <laughs> Oh, Sex in the City, younger. Um, is this Sex in the City for a new generation? I I think we were very sensitive to the idea that obviously, you know, Darren created Sex and the City and Darren created this show. So there's the automatic comparisons. There's Patricia Field doing costumes, another genius at what she does and another great, you know, tie-in between everything. But we really wanted to make sure that Emily was not a new Carrie. We wanted Emily to be Emily and stand alone. But I also feel like, and, and Darren agrees, that I think Emily grew up watching Sex in the City. I think she loved Carrie Bradshaw. I think she loved Audrey Hepburn. I think she read all the pages of Glamour and Vogue and Elle and all these magazines. And she had posters on her wall and she had you know, wish lists of if she ever went to certain countries, like where she'd travel. She even had outfits of what would Carrie wear? What would I wear? And so she's, she's been heavily inspired by the characters that she loves. And, you know, there are a few Easter eggs here or there that I think Patricia threw in um, as Odes to Sex and the City. And, and I just think that I know I, in my personal life, I've had moments when I travel somewhere and go like, oh my God, remember that episode in Gossip Girl? Or do you remember that episode in Sex and the City? Or do you remember that episode in Younger? And it's like all these shows that define different generations and like growing up and what different cities look like and what someone would wear. It's like you always in the back of your mind have those inspirations. And I think that probably Carrie was one of those inspirations to her as were all the other women in that show. Mm -hmm. And so I want it, I hope it stands alone and has its own moment. But at the same time, it would be a shame not to have, have paid a little tribute to the characters that I think she grew up loving. I mean, I feel like, you know, 
let's hope for a second season. And I really hope so too. <laughs> and I feel like maybe you're walking down the street in New York or Paris. And Carrie Bradshaw just walked. I don't even, I can't even, that would just be too much. I would just, that would, I would love that. I mean, I feel like maybe that needs to happen. <laughs> I kind of love that, by the way. I might tell Darren about that. <laughs> and acknowledge it. She just walks by. That's it. It's like an apparition. It's like, that's, was that her? <laughs> that would be me. Or like she walks by and there's like a reflection in a window and she looks in at herself, but it's like Carrie. And then it goes back and it's her. And she's like, what? What? I think that'd be kind of great. Oh, okay. Second like season. Second season. <laughs> and what's great about the show also is like, obviously there's romance, there's love life, there's sex, but it's not, not everything is surrounding that. It's not about Emily saying, yeah. I got to find that guy. We got to yeah. find you know, spoilers because we see how strong and independent she is right away. Yeah. yeah. And I love that. Thank you. I think that was also something that really struck home to me because it's, it's Paris is all about romance and I think it gets known as being about romance but I think part of the journey for Emily is like a romance with herself like falling in love with who you are as a person and you can do that at home and you can do that in a new way in a new country and people come into your life whether it's in a work environment whether it's friendships it's that idea of a soulmate and soulmates can come in many different forms, whether it's a romantic situation, whatever it is, or family. It's like every person that you meet that you keep close and that you love can really help you find different versions of yourself and make you understand yourself better. And, and a place can do that just as much as a person. And I feel like Paris is very much a character in this show. And of course we have to have you know sex and romance in there but I think it's only part of the journey of that Emily goes on to kind of like really deeply fall in love with herself and realize that she doesn't need another person romantically to fulfill her and to make her feel whole but of course part of that journey of finding yourself and like letting go and having fun and being a free spirit and that like amazing je ne sais quoi of Paris is through that it just doesn't have to define her story which i really liked and found to be quite different in terms of other things i'd seen that were like parisian based so let's talk about the diversity of the cast because i just love that <laughs> and another time we know this and another time it would have been an all-white straight cast in paris and here you have obviously faces of color, gender, sexual orientation. How important is that for you when you're going into a project now? Well, I think with my life specifically, I have such an array of friends and family and loved ones. Um, I, I just, I grew up without judgment. I grew up loving who I loved and, and having amazing people in my life that just were amazing people in my life. And I think that moving forward in, in projects that I'm a part of, it's so important to see representation um, for me and, and to be a part of something like this where everyone felt, everyone was just such a family and it, nothing was, there was no strategy. It was just everyone that was a part of the project is so meant for their roles. Everyone came in and just owned it. And I was so, I was so happy to be a part of such an amazing cast and crew and I think moving forward, I'm, I'm so aware of representation and I'm, I'm 
I'm so excited to be telling more stories and be a part of, of so many more projects that have such an incredible cast of people. So let's talk about something fun. Really, yes. that wasn't fun, but you'll get one. <laughs> Clothing, costume. I mean, I mean. I'm going to put you on the spot. What's your favorite Emily in Paris outfit? Oh my God. Um, okay. I, I mean, God, there were so many looks that Patricia showed me on the hanger and I was like, Ooh, that's a lot. And then I put it on and was like, Oh my God, it's so Emily. Um, I think one of my, one of my favorite looks, just because it's something that I would probably never have all put together. And then you put it together and it's such a statement and it's a shame because I wish every outfit had a whole episode to like live and breathe because every frame like looked so amazing. Um, but there's an outfit that I wear to Ralph's where we're eating like an American hamburger, the, the, the hamburger in Paris. And it's like, okay, it's a it's black and white, I'm sorry, black and pink sweater, but then it's like pink skirt, pink shoes, pink socks, pink jacket. It was like so much pink and I love pink, but I was like, this is, I'm like a walking neon pink like barbie of a set in a sense and and i just i loved it so much because i usually or i have in the past shied away from like too much color or too much print um and patricia it was like it was like never enough you know and if it if it was too much she'd like add a belt to like color block it and you go oh, that changed everything you know so that outfit i really loved just because it was bold and it was something that i felt was very emily and encouraged me to kind of get out of my comfort zone in a sense but my my favorite outfit where i i think favorite outfit paired with like a favorite memory of oh my god i can't believe i'm here is the paris opera house scene where it was an ode to audrey hepburn because again i feel like that's someone that emily just grew up admiring and having posters on our wall and she's like oh my god you know when I travel to Rome I want to have a Roman holiday and when I go to Paris you know and so when she was in the when we were got to be in the Paris Opera House and close it down for the night and I, I'm running around and up the stairs looking at the the stage and I'm I, I'm dressed the way that I'm dressed and I'm going this is surreal this is this is crazy that I get to do this and I get to do it dressed like this and then basically in between takes, I'm wearing slippers and I'm running around in slippers in like hotel slippers and this gown and my hair with the tiara. And I'm going like, I mean, what is life? This is just absurd. And I had to pinch myself. So I feel like they were kind of like different spectrums of Emily, um, more demure Parisian-y dressed up. And then the like, I'm bold and I'm proud and I'm obvious side of her, which I loved. And then coming up, Mank. Let's talk about that. Tell us about it. Tell, tell all the listeners, what should they know about this movie? Um, well, there's not, there's not too much that I'm at liberty to talk about. Um, it's called Mank, and David Fincher directed it. <laughs> um, and it's starring Gary Oldman and Amanda Seyfried and myself and, and an incredible cast of actors. Um, and it's, it's based in old Hollywood, and uh, it's about Herman Mankiewicz, who who wrote um, uh, Citizen Kane. And it's, that's really kind of all I can say. The, the first images were just released in, a, you know, yes. in black and white and stunning. And um, what a magical experience to go from shooting Emily with all this color in Paris to a month later starting Mank, uh, which was crazy. I actually... The process of how I even became involved in Mank was very crazy because I, I put myself on tape 
um, the week before I left Paris, left for Paris, sent the tape in, got on a plane, got to Paris, was in the middle of filming. And, you know, I'm nine hours ahead of LA there and then did a Zoom session with David Fincher. Then I found out that I got it. And then during filming, I'm in every, so in Emily, I'm, 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 I'm in every scene, right? So there's no days off. <laughs> um, but I, I flew back to LA for 24 hour periods only twice while I was filming. Uh, I was in the air longer than I was on the ground, I think. Um, I'd fly like on a Friday or Saturday morning, get to LA Saturday morning, go to rehearsals all of Saturday, Sunday morning, get back on a plane, fly through the night, get off the plane, sleep for like four hours and go into work at 5 a.m. So it was the craziest experience, but it was like, you have to do it. And I'm like, okay, I'll go from Emily in Paris to Lily in LA and I'll get off the plane zonked out of my mind. You know, at least I got to sleep the whole flight, but then go into rehearsals with David and some of the cast and then jump back on the plane. And it's just this crazy, it was a crazy whirlwind, but, but I got to do both. And, and then quarantine hit and it was like, oh my God, it's like, I got my fair share of kind of running all over the place before it happened. You know, I, I would have, I can't even imagine what I would have, I would regret not having taken those, those shots and those chances. So um, I think Mank closed down like mere days finished rather mere days before quarantine and for Emily I was doing um ADR from my closet for Emily and I did some ADR uh for Mank in quarantine as well so it all they all kind of finished and wrapped up while we were going through this so I feel really lucky that it didn't get put on hold or something you know it was crazy crazy timing that's pretty incredible uh, <laughs> when will you feel comfortable going back to a set what are you looking for? Um, so I, I've gone back to a set to do uh, um, campaign work for a photo shoot and everyone had to be tested before, you know, there's rigorous paperwork, there's before you go in, there's temperature checks, there's everyone's wearing masks and shields, there's like someone who is hired just to walk around making sure that everything happens correctly, there's desanitation, um, you know, there's sanitation, uh, like sprays that are going off every however many minutes and there's sanitary stations. And I mean, it, there were shields around hair, makeup, wardrobe, you know, it, it's, it's, it's strange because I'm such a personable person and I love the camaraderie element of what we do. Um, but I, I really respect the rigorous, process of figuring out what the new normal will be until there's whether it's a vaccine or you know a, a way that everyone is universally going to go back to some form of a normal at work um but i feel like what i've been a part of so far and the amount of of testing needed and the you know proof of everything that you're doing and and kind of not traveling and not doing i, I feel like I have been a part of sets where they've done it really well and I have felt very safe. Um, and I know that a lot of my friends have started to go back to work and, you know, productions are starting again. So I think that everyone's finding what that is. Um, 
I won't be putting myself in a situation where I don't feel like they've taken the proper time and etiquette to figure that out. But so far, I feel like I've been a part of it a couple times that have felt good and felt right. And I felt really safe. So I think it's just, you know, as we know, like watching the news, things are changing every day and places are opening up and then closing. And then they're like, okay, so now it's at this capacity and there's this. And I, and I just, at the beginning, I didn't want to feel like a test dummy. Like I want to kind of watch it progress and see what sticks and how it's working and what's happening. And I can only control how safe I feel and, and what I do and wearing a mask and getting tested and, and, you know, staying clean and staying home when I need to. And, you know, this press tour is very strange. I mean, it was, it was going to be like a worldwide press tour with lots of traveling and getting to see the cast and being with my, my friends that we take on the road and get to do and collaborate with. Um, but it's, it's different and, and it's different because everyone's being safe. And I, I miss elements of what was, but I'm really grateful to get to still do it in the way that is, you know, and it's a, it's a constantly evolving, evolving process right now. So I'm just, um, staying as kind of as smart as I can be, I think. And if everyone just stays as smart as they can be, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll hit that, whatever the new normal is, is sooner rather than later. So how many cities were you supposed to go on for this? I don't even know. I just know that it was supposed to be a lot. <laughs> I feel like it was supposed to be a lot of air flying time, which I'm not complaining about being home. I mean, I, as someone who's usually always away, it's been really nice to actually nest and, and be at home. Um, but I, I don't know. I do know that in the picking of specific looks and outfits for whatever press is happening, it's a lot of tops and a lot of pajama bottoms <laughs> and very weird and there's no shoes. So it's like all about the earrings now, you know, it's just funny. It's like the things you don't actually think about when you're just kind of like, Oh yeah. You know, I like used to wear this or I used to have to think about this or now we can actually schedule a lot more because it's all from home and it's in a computer and it's just strange, you know, but um, like I said, I'm, I'm very grateful to get to still do what we can and everyone's having to pivot. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, everyone's pivoting. And I think, I think it's a time that I've taken really for self-reflection and, and prioritizing and figuring out who I am when stripped of being able to see certain people and do certain things that I love and, and certain distractions and going out and like all these things, you're faced with that metaphorical mirror and you're kind of like, who am I and what do I want to accomplish and what do I want to be a part of moving forward and what's important to me and how have I learned about myself and different things going on in the world through this period and not letting like shame or embarrassment of things maybe you weren't as aware of before prohibit you from learning more, you know? And so I think it's been a really important time for that. So who are you, Lily Collins? <laughs> <laughs> Oh God. Well, you know, I'm somebody who I love what I do, but I've never let what I do define who I am. And I think that as I've gotten older, I do express myself through my work and my creativity, but I also, I really pride myself on like the friends and the loved ones that I've surrounded myself with. And it's been a really great time for me to stay connected to those people. And I'm a very introspective person. I love learning about humanity and the human mind. And 
emotions and why we are the way that we are and why we think the way we think. And I've used this time to like listen to a lot of podcasts and read a lot of books and just do like a lot of soul searching. I'm just someone who loves that. I think it's self-care at this time right now and understanding ourselves better and realizing the inner workings of who we are is a way to kind of like stay sane and stay centered and figure out the next way that you can be creative. So it's been about like getting out and breathing and being in nature more. And that's who I was as a kid growing up in the English countryside. I was like outside a lot. And I kind of have been able to get back to that more, which has been really nice. Um, And just kind of embrace like the quiet a bit more and use the quiet to like reflect. And I don't know, I just, I've, it's been really interesting to kind of do that and put, realize that like self-care isn't selfish. It's like showing yourself love. And right now there's this idea that we've like been in this quarantine place where we've all been like doing nothing, but at the same time, doing so much other work that we wouldn't have been doing on ourselves, you know? And so it's like, and in that it can be exhausting and it can be hard. And I think that we all need to just keep in mind that we all need some self-care every once in a while. And like looking inward is not selfish. It's actually going to maybe make you a better sister, brother, girlfriend, boyfriend, wife, husband, daughter, son, friend, whatever it is, you know, just a a more fulfilled version of yourself. And so that's, that's kind of what I've been doing, I feel. Lily, this is great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. It's so nice to see you in this way. I know, same here. And hopefully, um, we'll see each other in person. But uh, so stay safe. Stay, Stay positive and all that stuff that you're doing. And I love I always love talking to you. It's so nice. Awesome. Same here. Thanks, Mark. Bye. That was Lily Collins. Emily in Paris premieres on Netflix on October 2nd. We're going to take a short break, but when the big ticket returns, I'll be chatting with Zachary Quinto. I've got one word for you. Tom Cruise. On this new weekly podcast, Meeting Tom Cruise, we're going to talk about Tom Cruise. We're going to talk to people who have met Tom Cruise. Why? Because Tom Cruise is the greatest movie star of all time. Is he, though? Shut your mouth. Everyone who has met him has an amazing story to tell. And that's where I met Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. When I hear the bathroom door open, and it's Tom Cruise. Hey, everybody, I'm Jeff Meacham. You might know me as Josh Openhold from TV's Blackish, and I'm here with the Goose to My Maverick. Hey, I'm Joel Johnstone, and you might know me as Archie and the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And I'm Alec Lev, and you might... Nope, no one knows you from anything. Listen, we love Tom Cruise. We are inspired by Tom Cruise. But while we live and work in Hollywood, we've never actually met Tom Cruise. So we're going to talk to some people who have, and maybe one of them will lead us to the man himself, so we can have our own stories of meeting Tom Cruise. Does it really have to just be about Tom Cruise? Correct. Shut up! Why are you here? Listen to Meeting Tom Cruise on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. Mark Crowley's Boys in the Band, a drama about a group of gay men who gather for a birthday party, was an off-Broadway hit in 1968. However, at the time, the gay actors in the play were warned that just being in the show would be career suicide. Coming out publicly as gay was unthinkable. The actors remained in the closet. 
Remember, this was two years before the Stonewall Uprising. Now 52 years later, a Netflix adaptation produced by Ryan Murphy and directed by Joe Mantello features a cast of all-out actors, the same ensemble who starred in its Broadway debut in 2018. Zachary Quinto plays the birthday boy, Harold. I talked to Quinto about pivoting from stage to screen and why he thinks the show continues to resonate. Plus, he opens up about his decision to reveal his sexuality nine years ago. How's quarantine going for you? How's all of this? How are you coping? Oh, as well as I can. You know, I feel um, I feel obviously grateful. And um, yeah, I feel like I've been doing everything I can to stay productive and creative. And, um, you know, I, obviously it's not ideal, but I'm reminding myself um, that there is opportunity in this time. And to welcome it and to slow down and to have some more perspective, I think are the worst things that that could happen. Mm -hmm. So, so far, so good. So what have you learned about yourself while you're in quarantine? Um, I mean, patience is something that I've really learned about myself Mm -hmm. and in my experience, Um, you know, really just allowing um, the circumstances to be what they are rather than spending any time or energy or effort um, wishing that they were what I wanted them to be. Um, <laughs> that's been a huge lesson, right? Um, it, I, there's a path that I can walk down in my own mind and in my own experience where it's absolutely unfathomable what's going on. Um, and I catch glimpses of how life used to be and it can be really destabilizing. And so I really, I've really allowed um, the experience outside of myself to just be what it is. And, uh, and that's been, it's been an interesting thing. I came to LA a few months ago, so I will say LA seems to be, for me anyway, um, a better place at the moment. I miss New York and I've heard from a lot of people that it's incredibly vital and vibrant and people are out and about and the streets have a kind of European quality to them. And I miss that, but um, but I love that I can be still connected to nature here in a yeah. way that is a lot easier. Did you watch the Emmys last night? You know, I didn't watch the Emmys last night. I felt really, uh, I tried, um, but I couldn't <laughs> figure out um, how oh, to turn, like, I, I, yeah, I couldn't, the, there was something wrong with my cable and I felt a little, um, I felt a little daunted by this format, although, um, I was happy for all the winners. So happy for Dan Levy and the Shit's Creek gang. I mean, I mean it was it so, I just, just reading about it was amazing. Literally you know? the first hour of the Emmys was just like Shit's Creek, Shit's Creek, Shit's Creek. And it was just like, it was pretty, and it's pretty fantastic. So. I feel like, yeah. you know, I've known Dan for a long time and, uh, and he's just such um, a lovely, generous person. And I just mm-hmm. feel like the whole foundation of that show was built on this kind of generosity, familiarity, the relationship between Catherine and Eugene and how far back they go and just the family connection. I mean, it's just, it's such a, it really, I think it's reflective of what you were just talking about actually, that it's Mm -hmm. like the fact that they swept the category is I hope indicative of people's recognition that it's not just the work, which is also excellent, but it's what's underneath the work, the spirit of the work. And I think the spirit of that show is uh, is so deeply rooted in love uh, mm-hmm. and joy and celebration 
um, it was really nice to see that reflected back at them with such um, uh, recognition and such, um, you know, such honor that they all really deserve. So it was really cool to see that. And I think, you know, it's coming to Boys in the Band, it's, I was thinking about it this morning, I was coming out of the shower, I'm like, you have Shit's Creek, like just sweeping, it's crazy, you have RuPaul on there, it's just not, Boys in the Band, it wasn't that long ago when that was the only form of really gay entertainment, yeah. you know, and it shows how far we've come. But what I've said about Boys in the Band, I think in many ways, you could put that in 2020. Mm-hmm. Change around some of the phrasing. We all know every every guy who's in Boys in the Band, we all know the man who is like that. Yeah, I think that's very true. It, it captures something. And we certainly, I don't think we all knew that going into the play two years ago. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think we re- we acknowledged how resonant it would be or i don't think we i don't think we knew how resonant it would be until we did the play and um and and saw every night the theater just packed with audiences who were recognizing themselves or someone they know up on stage and uh and the impact of that uh was was incredibly um exhilarating and i think Mm -hmm. that's just continued into this experience of making the film um but yeah we know those guys, it's true. The <laughs> circumstances around them have changed somewhat, yeah. you know, externally, socially, right. politically, for the most part. But, you know, the internalized feelings that they are all um, addressing within themselves and, and, and wrestling with in, in a lot of cases, are those that different? I don't know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the first time you saw the movie? I've never seen the movie. Never seen, you've never gone to like, let me go see no, this because, movie? Because when I, I hadn't seen it when I got invited to do the play. And I thought, well, I don't want to watch it before we go into rehearsals. And then I thought I'll watch it when the play is over. <laughs> um, and then I went right into another job after the play was done. Um, and then by the time I would have watched the movie, the our movie was on the <laughs> table. And so I thought, well, I don't want to watch it now. Um, so I'm, I'm going to wait until, you know, we've put it out into the world and, uh, I very much look forward to the experience. I know William Friedkin came to see the play and I think he's even seen, um, the movie actually. And I respect him tremendously as a filmmaker and just to see all those actors who originated these roles. And, um, it's something that I really look forward to, but not an experience that I've yet had. What do you want young people to get from Boys in the Band? Um, I, I would love for there, first of all, I was thinking about this the other day, how excited I am to be able to share this story and our version of this story with such a wider audience, you know, um, Mm -hmm. I've, I've encountered so many people since we did the play either, you know, um, virtually or in person, um, you know, who would say like, I'm so disappointed I wasn't able to make it to New York or I couldn't see it on Broadway or you know, that, that we get to, to take this story and amplify it around yeah. the world now, which is really exciting. And, and I, I, want, um, I want people to enjoy themselves first and foremost, but for young people, I would really love for them to be able to identify the universality in this story. Yes, it's a story about gay men and gay friends at a particular time in history and, and in, in the United States, but 
I think there's something much deeper here that Mart was able to capture in these characters. And I think it's about um, this very human longing that we all share, whether we're gay or straight or um, you know how, what our gender identity is or our racial identity. I mean, there is this kind of human longing that I think Mart really taps into and he taps mm. into it through the lens of the gay experience, but I don't think it's limited to that. And so I would really love for young people to be able to identify that and to recognize a little bit of their own experience in, um, in who these guys are and what these guys want, which is ultimately to be loved. Um, right. You know, some of them spend a little too much time and energy looking for that love outside of themselves. And some of them are really wrestling to find it within themselves. Um, and, uh, and I think that's true of anybody in the world today. And, uh, mm. and so, yeah, I hope, I hope young people are able to identify that in the film. How did you approach the film differently than you approached the play other than not doing it eight <laughs> times a week? <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's an incredibly unique experience to have, um, done a play I've never had this right. this happen before you know to do a play to immerse ourselves in in the journey of that to finish that to have a complete creative experience that mm -hmm. then we're away from for a year and then to come back to it with the same group of people um there was a kind of familiarity and shorthand um and connection to the characters and to one another um that made it utterly delightful to come back in. Uh, mm -hmm. Joe Mantello, uh, who directed the play on Broadway and also directed the movie um, beautifully, I think, um, was smart to ask for about a week of rehearsal. So we had time to come back together and to hear the play mm -hmm. out loud. But once we got those words out into the space again, it was, it was a really um, kind of smooth re-entry into the world and the characters. I will say, when I showed up for my first costume fitting with Lou Eirich, who is an amazing costume designer, I realized that we were working um, on a different level of, um, of detail with the movie, which is obviously going to be true when you're kind of looking at things from that perspective, right, that a camera allows. Whereas on, on stage, our production was, it was ambiguously set in the 60s in this time but there wasn't a lot of um you know our wardrobe for example was suggestive of the time period but it wasn't um all period pieces but when i walked into my wardrobe fitting for the movie and and lou just sort of unfurled this bolt of green velvet <laughs> and you know i was trying on all these period shirts and ties and shoes and i just i was like oh yeah right this is a movie so there's so much more in Judy Becker, our production designer, who built this amazing apartment and, and, and just, you know, cluttered it with all of this amazing stuff. So there was just this granular kind of connection that we all had to the space that we were in and the characters mm. that we were playing. And I think that was probably the foundation of the experience for me, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And then from there, it just became about, um, whereas when you're doing a play, everything becomes about, you know, hitting the back row, right? Your choices right. all have to hit the back row of the theater. But Harold's a character that makes absolutely no effort whatsoever to reach anybody, you know? It's, <laughs> it, he's all about, you know, people coming to him. And so it was kind of great to be in an environment where I could actually let that happen and not have to play that while still shooting it to the back of the theater, you know? Uh, so that was great. Um, there was a kind of 
Um, there's a magnetism about Harold that I think was able to more fully exist in a natural way on film than, than it was on stage. What do you like about Harold? Oh, so many things. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a controversial character, I think in some ways. I mean, he's a, he's a controversial person. I, I've come to adore him. Um, first of all, he's incredibly, um, funny. I mean, he's a very, very, his observations, his wit and his, um, his cutting humor is, uh, to me, just a kind of a delicious aspect of him that was really fun to play. Um, but he's also someone who's, I think, really, in a lot of ways, very fully realized as a person. He's, he's examined himself completely. Mm. He, 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 you know, he hates himself and he knows that he hates himself. And so in a way, his acknowledgement of his self-loathing, um, it dismantles that and it turns that, that hatred into power in a way. So I mm -hmm. find him kind of a very, he's very integrated and he's absolutely unapologetic and, uh, and he knows exactly what he's looking at and he's not afraid to name it. And those are all qualities that I, you know, I appreciate in a character that I'm playing. I don't necessarily <laughs> know that I embody them in my real life, but I, I certainly enjoyed the experience of, uh, of playing in that sandbox for sure. What is it, what I love about the film, the new film, is it doesn't take the stage and the theatrical experience out of it. It doesn't turn it into a movie. Mm -hmm. It's, you still, I feel like I'm watching a stage production, not a film stage production, which is different, but it's still, I mean, and I don't know if that's because the set is so intimate and the walls are closing in on everybody. So maybe that's what it does. But I just love the fact that it didn't, you know, all of a sudden there weren't scenes of you on Fire Island or, you know, it really stayed true to this is a stage play, dialogue, a lot of dialogue, much more dialogue than you'd find in any movie. Yeah. And I just love that about it. I mean, I think this is a real testament to Joe Mantello. I think he and Bill Pope are um, our DP, who I, I was absolutely blown away by. I mean, it's it's not an easy feat to take such a dialogue-heavy piece yeah. and translate it into a cinematic language that's vivid, compelling, and um, and and engrossing for an audience. And I think both Joe and Bill together were able to do that. They captured the spirit of the play but then they translate it in, into this medium that I think um, succeeded in, in bringing it down, closing it in, as you say. You know, the other thing is when you watch a play, you're looking at this proscenium that's however, you know, however wide it is in, in the booth theater or whatever, but you're, you know, you're looking at this whole picture and your eye as an audience can go wherever you want it to go. You can look at whoever you want to look at or whatever, right. you know, people might be talking over here, but you're looking at what's going on over there. And in the film, those choices are made for you, right? And that's something that I think can often undermine, or I think that's where having done the play in the first place uh, really served the film because we were able to build those moments with Joe and with Bill and to say like, yeah. I think that we should catch this. And, you know, as we were rehearsing, you know, some of those things that we discovered on stage, we could identify the ones that were, that we all collectively felt were important for the audience to witness. Um, I think if you were coming to this without any of that 
background or the foundation of having done the play that might not have been so easy to do. Um, so that was a joy as well. Um, knowing who's looking at whom and, you know, what sort of glances might be important, even mm -hmm. if they're, um, you know, happening between two people who might not be speaking at that moment. So that was also kind of an interesting, unique aspect of doing a movie of something that we had already done the play of. What does it feel like when you hear that the men who were first, you know, approached to do the play back in the sixties were told, uh, you don't want to do that. And you definitely don't want to be openly gay and do that. Mm -hmm. It's wild to think. And like you said, like here, this is a play with just openly gay actors. Mm -hmm. Done, you know? Just a, just a bunch of gays up here. Um, <laughs> I mean, that to me is, that's the thing that makes me feel so grateful and so, mm -hmm. um, so uh, happy to be a part of this project because it really does, it's a kind of, it's a touchstone for uh, how far we've come. And, and I think what an incredible time it is to be alive, as unsettling as things are right now, socially, politically, environmentally. Um, it's, uh, we are living in a vital time. We are living in a time when, you know, radical changes have taken place in this country and around the world. And you know, we, we will have lived to see them. And, and there's something about that that feels um, like we're really fortunate. And I don't want to lose sight of that, you know, and being a part of this project and being able, as I said, to amplify this story all around the world um, for mm -hmm. people who may be living in places where this level of tolerance hasn't yet been attained. And, and we can be you know, we're not just people that are telling this story of what it used to be like. We're people who are living fully integrated, fully realized lives now as actors, you know, as producers and directors and the people that are involved in the project um, in a way that maybe we can be some, um, some tool of reassurance for, for young mm. people and for people that, you know, maybe don't have the the advantages that we do, maybe that's something that could happen. I don't know. When you were starting out, did anyone ever say to you directly, you don't want to be out? Did oh, you... I said it to myself. Nobody needed to say it to me. <laughs> I felt it, you know, I just, it was the, I came out of school uh, uh, in 1999. So it was an era where there was still a real, um, uh, explicit stigma against being openly mm -hmm. gay in our business. And I moved to Los Angeles after I graduated from school. And, you know, I was out in my life to my friends um, and to my family, um, but I was not out in, in a public way. And, you know, I wasn't, I was waiting tables and auditioning for guest stars. So it wasn't like uh, me coming out was gonna make any kind right. of impact <laughs> on the industry. But, um, but I did feel like me, coming out would have potentially had an impact on my career and it wouldn't have been a good one. So there were many years where I just didn't acknowledge my, my sexuality in any way uh, other than to people who knew me. Um, but yeah, um, it was all around us, you know, and there were a lot of websites at the time where, you know, the sort of online gossip mill was just emerging in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of energy in that space was directed toward outing people and, coming up with, you know, proof and, you know, it was, it was, 
untoward in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, I think we've we've moved through that and past that. I don't think we've overcome it completely, you know. Um, mm. But yeah, I didn't I didn't need to be explicitly told because the messages were pretty loud and clear. Did you live in fear? Was there a fear when you're walking around? Because your friends know, other people know, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it was like I can remember. I can remember running into. This is interesting. I remember running into a, an ex, a studio executive that I had a, a, a working relationship with, um, and I was with a friend of mine who was visiting from out of town, who I'd known since college, and you know we weren't together. But you know, my friend is gay, and uh, and I remember the feeling of of dread running into him in like a Best Buy, and feeling like, oh, you know, he just saw something, or he just saw like this was just my friend. Like it was so there was a bit of an undercurrent of that. Like, is he gonna, you know, am I not gonna be able to do this project now, or is there gonna be some mm. ramifications of it? I think there was a little bit of that, um, and I needed to go through that. I needed to experience that for myself to realize that. Um, I wasn't going to let it define my experience. You know, I wasn't going to let it dictate who I was. And, and that took a little while, periods of adjustment, right? It's everybody's mm -hmm. on their own journey. So it's about yeah. kind of getting more comfortable in my own skin and having my own um, confidence to stand up and say, this is who I am. And that took a while, you know? Um, yeah. But the, but the freedom that comes with that. Yeah, that to me, it was like, well, look, you know, there, I, I got to a place in my life where the idea of denying or um, lying about or just not acknowledging who I am fully was just, it was just not an option. That, that level of, um, of duplicity or um, inauthenticity just wasn't something I was interested in. So mm -hmm. uh, I did arrive at a place in my in my career as well, where I had had, I had now achieved a certain number of things that I had set out to achieve, you know, and uh, I came out in 2011. So I came publicly. So I came out after Heroes and Star Trek, after I had started my production company and, you know, produced my first film. And that was a, that was a, a, a point for me at which I felt like I had, I had less to lose, mm. but I navigated that, that, that road measuring what was at stake and measuring, you know, am I going to suffer for this decision? But ultimately I got to a point where I thought, you know, if I am, then, then that's, then I'm not interested in, I'm not interested in the alternative anymore. And that was at a time when like a lot of young gay kids were killing themselves around the country because of bullying. Mm -hmm. There was a huge spate of teen suicides that were happening. And I just felt like, I had a, an obligation at this point, having enjoyed a certain level of success, I felt like the hypocrisy was too much to bear for me to be enjoying this life that I had created for myself and not acknowledging um, my identity as a gay man. I felt like it was um, actively harming uh, a group of young people who it, the, the, the choice to come out could benefit. And that to me felt like something that I needed to face and step into and yes. Mm. And the freedom that comes from that. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yes, for sure. So talk about that because, you know, again, I go back to the original where you have these gay actors, maybe some of them were out, some of them weren't. 
you and I, you know, and I've said this to probably most of your cast. I've definitely said it to Jim Parsons. I've said it to Andrew. I just said it to Charlie, and I've said it to him before. Like, by you guys being out, you save lives. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds like hyperbole, and am I being dramatic? But I truly believe that. And you take it one step further, not only just being out, just being like, okay, I'm gay, but then doing a project like Boys in the Band. Mm-hmm. It just really just shows young people. And I'm not a young person, so it shows young Me people. But then I try to explain it to young people. They don't, they don't necessarily understand it all the time. Yeah, which well, is this which is good. Certainly, I think, yeah, um, probably you know, in a lot of ways, it's a great thing that they don't right. have the the perspective. I mean, there's such a freedom in this in this generation of kids coming yeah. of age and declaring their identities and exploring their identities and and parents seem to be much more in line with that. I mean, I think we're it's it's a beautiful thing to behold, but one of the um, byproducts of that can be a lack of connection to um, all of the sacrifices that were made to get us to this point. I think my generation existed right on the cusp of it. So we mm-hmm. had to be aware of it. You know, I was aware of the AIDS epidemic as it was happening. Kids yeah. who are, you know, um, uh, coming of age today weren't connected to it in the same way. And so I think there's that thing that we have to be beacons of, uh, of, of reminder. And, and we mm. have to carry this lineage through. We have to be responsible to it. And yes, I definitely feel like uh, you know, I have certainly had a number of encounters over the last, you know, nine years since I came out in which young people have explicitly expressed to me that notion that, you know, there was something that they saw or there was an interview that I gave or that there was some experience that they had that really changed their circumstance. And, and that to me is, um, I take... Uh, you know, enormous gratitude in that, um, mm. even if it's just one person, you know. Um, but yes, then the other thing, the other aspect of that, I think, is telling our stories and, and making sure that our stories and our history um, are, are, so that's another thing that I hope young people mm-hmm. take from this experience is like, you know, this is where we came from. And this wasn't that long ago. No. You know, this, this, is, this is times in which their parents were very much around you know um or maybe not and far, it, but almost do you have a dream role is there a role out there is... i really want to do sweeney todd that's what i want to do on and, stage. You, who, and you want to you want the lead oh yeah for sure oh yeah that that show had such a um it had such an impact on me the first time i saw it when i was probably about 11 years old and I didn't realize how, well, first of all, I didn't realize how terrifying theater could be, <laughs> you know? Uh, I was I was so, like, I remember uh, I was a member of this, like, performing group as a kid at the Civic Light Opera in Pittsburgh, and so we got invited to the dress rehearsals of the main stage shows, and they were doing Sweeney Todd with Karen Morrow and John Seifer, and <laughs> I, remember, uh, I remember sitting on the floor of the mezzanine kind of like leaning back against the um, the chair that was folded up. And this is, we were all like waiting for the show to start. And that pipe organ music starts at the beginning of Sweeney Todd. And then that work whistle goes. And I leapt about 
five feet <laughs> up off the ground and was like, from that moment until the end, I just couldn't move. I was so absorbed by it. And uh, I've seen that, that musical more than any other show in the theater, I think over the years. And, uh, and I feel like also my career and, you know, my work in Heroes and American Horror Story and all that kind of dark stuff lends itself to people again associating me with that kind of character so yeah that's something i really want to do i'm still i'm still a few years away from i think really being able to play that role but uh that's something i'd love to do why a few years why a few years away from playing the role I, well because i think i feel younger than i am <laughs> listen so okay so, so i, I need, have i say? have well thank you sir this is wonderful I had a great time. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on it. Stay safe. Be well. Thank you. You too. That was Zachary Quinto. Boys in the Band is available on Netflix. Coming up on the next big ticket, Dylan O'Brien. The one-time teen wolf heartthrob returns to the big screen in the apocalyptic adventure movie, Love and Monsters. Until then, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mark Malkin. And for all your up-to-the-minute Hollywood news, head over to Variety.com. Stay safe, be well, and please keep wearing those masks. See you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.